Cactus Campus joins us, and as our Northridge campus and our chapel and our venue, uh, it was a special day for me to have uh, Ethan here uh, leading us in worship. Ethan is our worship pastor at the Cactus Campus, and sometimes we we rotate around a bit just to to show uh, you know some of the diversity and such that we have. And, and last time Ethan led worship here, I pointed out what makes him very diverse, and that's that man bun that he wears in the back there. And I and I comment last time that I sure wish I had a, a man bun and uh, true story so the, the very next day I was at home and I get a text or an email and somebody in the communications department was texting this out and uh, yeah I know those guys have they have a lot of time on their hands don't they and uh, I thought that was really funny, and uh, what makes it so funny is that I have no hair left to uh, ever do something like that. You know, when I first came here 12 years ago, I, uh, there's pictures, I think, somewhere on campus of all the previous senior pastors, and, you know, uh, most of them have hair, including me, and uh, it's changing fast. But I don't want to whine about that. I, I talk to Dad every, uh, now Monday night, and, uh, you know, Dad's 85, and I call him once a week just to, to check up, and once in a blue moon, I'll start to whine about how it feels to be 55, and oh, I just get an earful. You wait till you're 85, you know, you don't know. That's why I can't whine anymore about my age. (laughs) We're in a series right now, talk about getting real. We're in a series called Get God, Get Real, Get Out There. It's called Get It. And uh, it's, it's a distillation of our vision, our mission, the values that drive us as a church that we, we're all rallying around. And so last week we began by looking at what we mean just in part by get God. We looked at God's power and sufficiency and talked about what it means if we would all uh, get on board with who God is in that area of our life. And today we're going to talk about uh, what it means to get real. And this will be an important message for some, if not many of us, because, you know, it's one thing to say get real, but from a biblical Christian Jesus perspective, what what do we mean by that? And that's what we're going to look at today. So, uh, and then next week we'll talk about uh, some components of getting out there. And uh, I hope this is meaningful to you. It's very meaningful to us, meaning the staff and elders, that we look at this because it's what defines us in great part as a Jesus-following, biblically-based church. So let's bow right now, and then we'll dive right in. Father, um, that is really the, the heart goal that we have around here, as you know, and that is to honor you, to love you, to learn about you in your word, and then relate to you, trust you as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so, Father, I pray that as we talk today about what it might mean to pattern our lives after Jesus when it comes to this idea of living reality, I pray, God, that you would uh, give us wisdom and insight into what you have revealed in your word. And, Lord, may we have the courage to live these things out. It's going to be a tall order today, but may we have the courage to to get real in our lives as we're going to see for the kingdom depends on it. And I pray this in Jesus' name, and we say together, amen. So I want you to think of all the things in our modern day world that we have designed to look real, but really 
aren't. I mean, it's just everywhere. We have vinyl flooring today that's made to look like tile. We have plastic decking that's made to look like wood. We have fake fur that's made to look like real fur. We have hair pieces that are made to look like real hair where there is no hair anymore. We have pleather made to look like leather. We have copies of famous paintings to look like the real thing. I mean, think about it, gang. The list is endless to the things that our modern-day world manufactures to look real. Uh, Probably the most popular thing now is reality television. Heard of that yet? Where we have these TV shows that they're supposed to be grounded in reality, but what most articles and, and, and news watchers are showing is that these shows are just as choreographed as Hollywood movies. They're really not all that real. We have artificial grass made to look like real grass. We have vegetarian meat patties today. Go figure that one out. Made to look and taste like the real thing. And yet out of the thousands of things that we have manufactured to look real, here is my favorite of them all. it's, It's mud in a can. This is an actual product. It was made for 4x4 SUV owners who never take their 4x4 on a 4x4 so that you can spray synthetic mud on it to show that you were out in the wilderness. A true story, the maker says, and I quote, we designed this to give 4x4 SUV owners back some dignity. <laughs> I mean, more so than any other time in the history of the world, you and I live in a day and age in which we have invented literally thousands of things to substitute for the real thing. It's all around us. And here's my point. This wouldn't be so bad if we confined it to things. But you and I both know that in our world today, we now are tempted to do the same in our personal lives. We're tempted to project an image that we try to claim as reality when you and I both know we're as fake as a $3 bill. I read an article this week about a popular singer. I'm not going to say who because it wasn't a positive article, but it was just pointing out that this very popular singer is now on her fifth uh, iteration of inventing herself or reinventing herself and how the populace sees her. It pointed out that she started off as an innocent young singer and then went on to Bad Girl and then went on to Vixen and now moving into Lover and and all these different iterations. And I felt bad for this singer because I thought, I don't think she knows who she is. It's hard to be real in today's world. It's hard to even know what is real. And so when we say around here that we want to get real as a church, it's a very worthy thing to talk about and to define what we mean. Because I would ask you, what is real? And how do we get real? And according to God, what's involved in being real? These are some of the questions that we want to begin asking and answering today. And so as we allow the Bible to guide us, why? Because God knows us more than anybody else. He is the author of what is really real. And so as we allow his book to guide us, I want to run by you three things that his word tells us about getting real. And here is the first thing. 
It's the starting point of it all, and that is that getting real begins by getting with others. Some of you are not expecting this, but you'll see this is true. Getting real begins, the starting point happens when you get with others. Let me tell you a story that will dive us into this uh, understanding a couple of decades ago, I was sitting in my office at the church I was pastoring back in the Midwest, and I got a phone call uh, and was requested, requested to do a funeral. And I'll never forget this phone call. It was one of the grown daughters uh, calling me. There were two daughters, sisters, who mom had passed away, and, and they asked me if I would do a funeral for their mom. And they didn't go to my church. I didn't know them. And I said, well, tell me about your mom. And they said, well, she was a single mom all of her life, an amazing lady, totally devoid, devoted to her kids. We never knew our dad. And they, uh, she said all the neighborhood kids would come over to our house and we'd play and have cookies and everybody loved our mom. And she was very well liked. And I said, well, tell me about her spiritual life. And they said, well, she wasn't very religious. She didn't go to church hardly at all, but she did have a deep private faith in the Lord. And I thought, okay. And then I asked the question that I always ask. I said, well, how did she pass away? And the daughter was kind of quiet at that point. And she said, well, it's there that things get awkward and how we want to convey this at the funeral. And I said, tell me what happened. And they said, well, we went over to her house the other day and we found her in her living room and she was passed away. She was dead. And as we looked closer, she had an extremely distended belly and we didn't know what that was about. We'd never noticed it before. And so we had an autopsy done and, and they found out that that distended belly was the tumor the size of a basketball. And we thought, well, that couldn't have happened overnight. And so we started to do some digging and found out that a year before she had gone to an emergency room and been diagnosed with an aggressive form of cancer in her gut. And yet well, that was the last time that she ever saw a doctor. That was the last time she went to a hospital. That was the last time she sought any treatment. She didn't seek any treatment for this. And the daughter told me, she said she must have done an incredible job of hiding it because, you know, we never noticed it. But over the next year, it would grow and grow and grow. And eventually, it took her life. But the daughter said to me, none of us knew about this. Now, folks, I want you to try to think about this. I mean, some of you have walked through cancer with a loved one or even yourself. Can you imagine one year of metastasizing cancer inside of you with no prescription painkillers, no treatment, no hospital care, no hospice care toward the end, and most of all, no friends, no family to talk to, nobody to journey through this with you. In short, no relational community at all during a time when probably the most independent and isolated of personalities would be screaming for some emotional contact. And though in one sense, I thought at that moment, I thought, you know, well, in one sense, we can all respect this woman's courage and not wanting to bother her friends and daughters. And, you know, that's how I got kind of how she lived her life. The thought also hit me as I was talking with this daughter on the phone. I thought, this is not how God has made us. He did not make us to do life this alone, especially when things get difficult and the road gets bumpy. 
It's not how we're designed. He made us to be more real and authentic than that, at least with a few other trusted ones around us. And as I performed the funeral for this dear lady, my major sadness, I can remember it like it was yesterday, was grieving for a woman who had to suffer alone and hide her pain from even those around her who would love her. I'll never forget this scenario. You know, at one point in his ministry, Jesus communicated this idea to us in a head-turning kind of way. I mean, Jesus had a lot of shock value in the way he communicated his father's truth. Look at what he says in Matthew 18, 20. He says, for where two or three have gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. Let that sink in a minute. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst. In other words, don't miss this, there is a special presence of God, a promised attendance of Jesus when we band together in small, Christ-focused community. In a very real way, this is the way I need you to see it today, there is a revealing of God who then reveals things about each of us in the realm of relational community. Jesus is telling us here that we were not meant to do life alone. That we were meant to do life, if you will, in little platoons, in relational community. And a huge part of learning to get real is going to be found in that realm of community. I love how John Eldridge in his book, Waking the Dead, says it. This is good. He says, when he left Rivendale, Frodo didn't head out with a thousand elves. He had eight companions. Jesus didn't march around back by hundreds of followers either. He had 12 men, knuckleheads, every last one of them. But they were a band of brothers. He says, this is the way of the kingdom of God. Though we are part of a great company, we are meant to live in little platoons. The little companies we form must be small enough for each of the members to know one another as friends and allies. He goes on to ask, is it possible for 5,000 people who gather for an hour on Sunday morning to really and truly know each other? Okay, how about 500, 108? It can't be done. They can't possibly be intimate allies. It can be inspiring and encouraging to celebrate with a big old crowd of people, but who will fight for your hearts? You see, Jesus talked over and over again about the power of small community. And you gotta ask why. Why is it that Jesus was so rabid that the church, as we'll see in a minute, and that he even modeled for us, engage in these small communities where you really get to know each other? And why is it that we even say that you can't even get real without that? Now watch this. I've thought about this a lot over the years. The reason that you and I need a few others around us to know us in order to help us get real is because those others act as a mirror effect for who we really are. It's true. 
Some of us think that we can get real and be real all on our own, but you can't. Your mind is too fallen. Your perceptions are too skewed. You need others around you like I do to be a mirror to us, to tell us as we interact with them what they sense is real and authentic and genuine or when we're just fooling ourselves and trying to kid ourselves about who we really are. I can remember my very first experience with this happened when I was recently saved, when I became a believer almost 40 years ago. I was late in high school, and when I was in early college, I was home one week after my uh, a, a, a break. I think it was like a spring break, and I was back home in my town of Chagrin Falls, and I was meeting with a lot of my high school buddies, trying to reconnect with them. And at one particular evening, we found ourselves in a bar. I just want to go on record saying I wasn't drinking or getting drunk. I was just hanging out with them, trying to share Jesus with them, truly. And I remember sitting at this bar, and I was bringing up a lot of spiritual conversations and telling them about what Jesus had done in me. And I'm going to never forget, one of my buddies looked at me, and he was so bold. He looked at me, and he said, Jamie, it's not real. It's, it's a phase you're going through. It's going to pass. So you might as well give it up now. Aren't you glad I didn't listen to him? But I, 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 uh, I, I was stunned by what he said. I had never had anybody be that bold or confrontational, let alone have, the, have hubris like that. And so I, I didn't even know what to do with it. It's rare that I'm stunned into silence, but I was. So I went home that night, and the next day I got with my absolute best friend, a man who would be the best man at my wedding. He helped me come back to the Lord when I was uh, in early college, and I, I shared with him what happened at the bar the previous night. And he was so helpful to me. He said, two things you need to know, Jamie. First, I want to affirm to you, what you have gone through with Jesus is real. I saw it. I was with you. I want to validate that your faith in Jesus is real. And as you walk with him, he's going to use you greatly over the years. He said, second thing I want to affirm to you is that, is that next time somebody says that to you, ask him what he thinks is real. Because as he's sitting there drinking booze and chasing women and living a life like that, ask him if he thinks that is more real than doing business with the God of the universe. That was one of my first experiences of an intimate community in which somebody reflected back to me who I was. And guess what? I needed that at that time. And over the years, I have found this mirror effect of relationality to be true, not just in affirming my salvation, but in so many things. When it comes to my personality, my marriage, my parenting, my leadership style, my ethics, my words... I'm with some intimate people all throughout the week. I'm in a small group and I'm married to Kim and I have friends and they're constantly affirming or not affirming the things that come out of my mouth and it's a mirror of my life and I trust it. You see, trusted others can truly become mirrors. They will reflect back to us what, we, what they see and hear even if they feel it's genuine or not and could it be that God is in that? Could it be that that's a great part of what Jesus meant when he said, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. And he's doing his work and helping us get real. I think it is. 
That's why I say the first step to getting real is to get with others. And it's the only thing that some of you here today need to hear. It's why relational community with a few trusted others is so critical. Now, as I say quite often, we're just ramping up because there's a second thing that the Bible says about getting real. And it happens once you're in relational community. And this is going to be the tallest order for some of you because you've gotten really good at hiding. But let's just wrestle with this. And that is that getting real involves being honest about who you really are. Getting real involves being honest about who you really are. Now, this is really profound. I want you to look with me at what the Bible says uh, took place during the very first week of the very first Christian church. In other words, we have record going back 2,000 years ago of what happened when the very first Christian church was formed shortly after Jesus ascended into heaven and the giving of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And it describes what this church was doing. And there's a particular description found in Acts 2, verse 46. It's our theme verse for this message that kind of cuts right to the heart of it all. Look at what it says. It says, and day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, because that's where religious folk met back then, and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Interesting. They were meeting together house to house. We've seen that point already. They realized they needed to have intimate communities in order to get real. But then don't overlook that as they did so, they met with sincerity of heart. Or as the King James Version says, singleness of heart. Or as the New King James says, simplicity of heart. The only translation that really messes this up, and I rarely pick on the English Standard Version because I love that translation, but I didn't use it for this message because they don't have it right. They say a generous heart, and that's that's an awful translation of this from the Greek. Let me explain. When the King James says singleness of heart or the New King James simplicity of heart or the NASB sincerity of heart, what they're getting at is an open Uh, laid bare, unfolded type of heart. This word in the original Greek, I'll explain more in a minute here, uh, literally pictures a heart, the seat of who you are, in which there's no folds. It's simple, it's sincere, it's open, it's laid bare. Because if you fold a heart, just like if you fold a piece of paper, you can tuck things away in there and hide them from those around you. So when it says that they met with simplicity or singleness of heart, what it means is is that they met with open hearts with those around us. They shared who they were with each other. It's really fascinating. This word is hard to translate. It only occurs once in all of the New Testament. And in its most rugged form, meaning its most root form, the word literally means not stony ground. It was a Greek word that they used to describe the ground if it was smooth or if it was all stony. And and if it was not stony, they would use the word aphelotes, which means not stony ground. That's the word here. 
And so what they're describing here is a smooth ground, not a craggy ground where you could hide things and where scorpions and snakes and all that could hide. No, this is an open ground, an open field, if you will. And so what the Bible is saying here is that that very first Jesus-focused, spirit-empowered church on the very first week when they hardly even knew each other, they met together in small communities and with unfolded, smooth, simple, single, non-craggy hearts, they shared their lives with each other. They were wide open and they were laid bare. They were honest with each other about who they really were. And what adds a lot of texture to this is that then you get on to Acts 5. And remember that harsh scene where God strikes down Ananias and Sapphira? I mean, he kills them. But why did he kill them? Because they lied <laughs> to the apostles. Don't ever lie to your pastor. They, they lied to the apostles. <laughs> and in all seriousness, in light of Acts 2, where God said, man, we're starting this thing off right. You guys are honest with each other. You're getting real with each other. It was such an affront to him in Acts 5 when they had fake community of Ananias and Sapphira. And all I can tell you is what a need that each of us have today for this kind of community. And I know that you desire it in your heart of hearts. Let me ask you, and this will date me a little bit, but why do you think shows like MASH that came out in the 70s or Cheers that came out in the 80s or Seinfeld and Friends which came out in the 90s, why do you think these shows were so initially endearing and popular? And why do you think they've stood the test of time? Why do you think you can't turn on a TV today without seeing reruns of MASH and Cheers and Friends and, and, and Seinfeld? You see, I think we all know the answer to that. And that is that each of these shows depict semi-normal people, at least as normal as you can get in today's world, accepting each other as they are and engaging in some form of authentic community. That's why these shows have touched people over the years. And here's what you need to know about the church. And that is that the church, God's ordained entity of community, is designed to be the safest place on planet earth. And when done right, he wants us to be honest with each other about who we really are without judgment, without condemnation, with acceptance, and yet not leaving each other there, but then helping us grow and mature to shut off that old man or woman and become who God wants us to be. That's the way it's supposed to work. But it will not work if you don't take the courage to get real. And it's right at this point, if you and I are having a cup of coffee and I was talking to you directly, man, it's right at this point where you would be tempted to say something to me that would be so right, that would be so real, and you might say something like this. You might say, well, Jamie, I have tried that type of community. Man, I've gotten with other believers and I've started to get a bit honest, and I gotta tell you, it was not a good experience. It was very messy, it was very disappointing, and I experienced lots of dangers like being misunderstood and hurt and disappointed and eventually even rejected. And you're here today telling me I need to try again. <laughs> I met with a guy just this week, and, and I didn't expect this, it's a, it's a dear friend of mine, and I, I met with him, and he's gone through a very, very difficult ordeal over the last year, and I asked him how, how it was going and how he was doing, and he shared with me a story that I've heard a thousand times. He shared with me is that, he's, that as he's got honest and vulnerable with just a select few uh, here in this community and, and started to share a lot of his journey because it's been a really rough journey, 
He said they didn't listen to him or hear him, at least from his perspective. He says he felt they came on way too strong, and he very quickly felt misunderstood and even judged. He said it's been a much harder year than I could have ever imagined. And my guess is, is that there's some, if not many of us here today in Northridge Cactus, yep, Richard, Northridge Cactus and, and, and Chapel and Venue that could tell a very similar story. And, and what happens is, and you all know this, is it then keeps us at arm's length from those around us. We come to church, we go to Bible study, we do our thing, but we say there's no way I'm ever getting that real again. And here's what you need to know. Let's wrestle with this right now because this is very real. Talk about getting real. As much as I get this, and I really do, man, I could tell you stories of how church people have hurt me over the years. Here's what we cannot forget. And that is that as real as that is, that there's another side to this and it's this. And that is that without a regular place of community to be who you really are, Jesus affirms this, without a place for you and me to take off our masks and engage with brothers and sisters who will love us in an agape sort of way, then the reality is you're not engaging in love. Let me repeat that. You're not engaging in love. And we all know this, that as risky as getting real is in the realm of small community, because you do risk being deeply hurt, we all know that without this risk, there is no such thing called love. There is no true relationality. There's only fake relationality. There is no getting real because as Jesus showed us earlier, you can't do it without truly getting with others and opening up. As many of you know, my, one of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis, the famous British author who died ironically the year I was born. And uh, Lewis was a voluminous writer and, and very profound. One of the books he wrote was called The Four Loves. It's become a very, very, very popular book over the years, kind of a textbook on what biblical love is. And though this is hard-hitting, look at what he says at one point. I, I, I can't escape this. I believe he's right. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to be sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. <laughs> He says, wrap it up carefully with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safely in the casket of your selfishness. And he says, and in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will not change. It will not be broken. Your heart will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. He then says, the only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from the dangers of love is hell. <laughs> and guess what, gang? He's right. God designed heaven, and someday, I, I hope we all get there, to be a place of absolute and immense love with him and each other. You will not be hurt in heaven. That's the good news. And hell is the opposite. It's the place where there is no love. There is no relationality. And we're stuck in the middle ground right now. That's why some of you say on a regular basis when you go through something difficult, this is hell. Uh, technically speaking, I hope you know that's not true, that hell will be a lot worse than anything you're going through here. Why? Because you're caught in between. You're in the land in between here. But that doesn't mean you don't go through experiences that are hell-like this side of heaven. And one of those experiences is when we get deeply hurt by others in community. And all I can tell you is that as much as I get that, we dare never allow that to cause us to give up on community. So what do you do 
Well, as the old saying goes, if this fails or you fall off your bike, try, try again. I told you earlier, and I can't break confidence here because it involves some of you, but I've been deeply hurt by church people over the years. Noni knows that. I've been betrayed. I've been hurt. I, 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 I just, I, I, my heart gets shattered by people who say they love me, and then as they get to know me, go, well, I'm rethinking that. And I get that, but I've been hurt by that. But you know what? What I've also done over the years, and I now have a 30-year track record with this, I am constantly making sure that I do surround myself with just a few brothers and then my wife and a few other couples that, that do know me well, that, that dare to accept me for who I am and journey with me through thick and thin. I meet every Tuesday with a group of men whom I trust. I've been in other groups where I thought I trusted them and it, and it didn't work out. I mean, it is a hit or miss at times. But I know what I need and I know what you need and I know that we need each other And so try as I might to say, I don't need other believers. I do, and you do as well. So open up that clamshell that holds that pearl of who you are inside and let others see it now and then. And if they don't do well with it, close it right up. But then move on and find some others because we need a place to be honest and get real. Your healing and the power of God's kingdom depends on that. Because you see, here is what getting real in the realm of, commu- of trusted community ultimately leads to. And it's a game changer if there ever was one. And it's the third thing on your outline. Now watch this. And that is that getting real makes you more Christ-like. Man, man if this doesn't move you, I got nothing else. Getting real makes you more like Jesus. In other words, and some of us haven't seen it this way, getting real, what we're talking about today, is one of the primary growth engines of your Christian life. It's where you will mature. It's where you will grow and become more like Jesus. And the fallacy is we tend to think, well, if I just read my Bible and tie it on the groves and go to church every week and go to Bible study and serve in a soup kitchen down in the city, well, then I'm going to grow as a Christian. And yes, all of those things will help you grow. But at the end of the day, God adds this caveat as well, that you will not grow without being an intimate, vulnerable, getting real type of community, that he uses that to help us grow and to help us grow to become more like Jesus. And what does it mean to be more like Jesus? John nailed it 2,000 years ago. Look at what he says. He says, and the word, Jesus, became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, here it is, full of grace and truth. So who was Jesus in his personality? He was full of grace, cutting slack, loving, not judging type of grace. Remember what he said to the woman caught in adultery? Let he who is out sin cast the first stone. But then, conversely, he was full of truth. He would always tell people the truth about who they were. So that same woman, by the way, that he said, you know, to the Pharisees, you guys back off. Let he who's out sin cast the first stone. Do you know what he said to her right after that? Remember the story? He said to her, now you go and sin no more. (laughs) So in one sense, he's showing tremendous grace and forgiveness. In another sense, he says, I want to help you stop being the way that you are. That's Jesus. And here's the cool thing, gang is that most people in the world today, on their best day, have one or the other. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, the people in my life, I got grace people and I got truth people. So I don't know about you, but I pick and choose depending on my mood, who I want to be with, right? (laughs) 
Like if I'm looking for a big dose of grace, man, Neil is my guy. I'm going to Neil and I'm going to hang out with him and watch some football and Neil's going to love me no matter what. He's got grace. But then there's other people. I met with one this week that are more truth people, prophetic people. And when I know that I need a dose of that, I'll get with them. Imagine if God said that you could become the type of man or woman that has both. In which somebody says, I'm going to get with Brian because somehow he feels like Jesus to me. Somehow he feels like he's got that grace component. He'll accept me even in the midst of my awful, awful sin. But, but he's also going to love me enough to help me to, to not be burdened by it anymore. Imagine if you could be that type of person. I want to wrap up with a story to show you how this works um, that will kind of counterbalance the story I began with about the woman in the funeral that I know is kind of a downer for some of you. Uh, shortly after that encounter at my last church, I, uh, I, I, I had another situation that I'll never forget. It involved a, a single mom named Tina. That's actually her real name, and I can tell you that because she's now with the Lord. You'll hear why in a minute. And when I met Tina, I knew I was going to love this woman from the day I met her. Tina had had a really, really rough background. I mean, just drugs and a lot of decadence and multiple men and all of that. But when I met her, she was 39 years old. She had recently come to the Lord and had a radical conversion to Jesus. She had an eight-year-old son from a, a previous relationship, and now she was doing her best to raise him. And she was a barber in the small town that I was living in. And, and, and she was a really boisterous personality. I, I remember the first day I went in to see her, I didn't know that she was a Christian or anything, and she's cutting my hair. And I said, oh, how do you like being a hairdresser? And she stopped and looked at me and said, I'm not a hairdresser, I'm a barber. I said, all right, okay, I don't meet too many women that are barbers, but I'm not saying that. And so I, uh, I said, okay, so you're, you're a barber. And then I find out she's a recent believer in Jesus and all on fire in her faith. And I thought, uh, this woman's just real, I love it. And she started coming to my church. And uh, when she came to my church, she met uh, the love of her life, Gordon, who was a little bit older guy, but, but uh, just a solid Christian as well. And again, a very down-to-earth guy. And they met and, and fell in love, and eventually they got married. And I did their premarital counseling and their wedding, and I'll, I'll never forget their wedding because it was so unorthodox. There we are in our beautiful church, you know, and they dressed up kind of nice. Gordon was in a Western motif, you know, and all that, and cowboy boots, and she was in a white dress, thankfully, and all that. And, 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 and right after the, uh, the vows, where you should play something like Pachelbel's Canon or something like that, they, they had come over the loudspeaker this rocking newsboys song. I mean, it just blared in the sanctuary, and yet it was a moment in time because they just started raising their hands in holy worship as they held hands together to this newsboys song. And I thought, I'm not, I've never seen this in a wedding before. But it was very, very real. About a year or so, maybe shortly, maybe just a few months after they got married, it was a very short time, I got a call one day from Gordon. He said, Pastor, I need you to come over. Things aren't good. And I thought, oh, are they struggling in their marriage? Whatever. And I went over. And they were doing fine in their marriage. But, but Tina had got a terrible, terrible health prognosis. Uh, Tina had had some back problems for the two years before she got married to Gordon, but she didn't have any health insurance, just Medicaid. And so they didn't really look into it all that much. We assumed it was from standing all day. But after she married Gordon, she had this good health insurance and started to get this looked into. And very quickly they found out that she had a very advanced form of cervical cancer and that it had metastasized to her spine and that it just wasn't looking good. It was, they said, about a year you have to live, and that's with the most aggressive treatment. And obviously this couple was stunned. 
Here she is, 39 years old, a little boy, finally found the love of her life. Things are looking up, and then this. She decided to go through a very aggressive treatment. We wanted to hang on to life as best we could, so it was intensive chemo, intensive radiation. And they even set up a little hospital bed for recovery at her home. She lived in a Habitat for Humanity home uh, just uh, about 10 miles from our church. And every week I would go over to see her. I paid her a visit every single week just to stay close to her. And I wish I could tell you that it was a glorious year, but it was not. It was a very brutal year. It was brutal physically to see her fight this cancer and the pain, and it just went downhill. The elders prayed. We prayed for a miracle, but God saw otherwise, and it just was a very difficult year as she fought this. Just a lot, a lot of turmoil. And spiritually, she was really struggling. She asked the question that many of you would, why God? I mean, she never gave up her faith at all. I mean, she loved the Lord, but she did not understand, as any of us would, why this had happened to her and what could God's plan be in this. And every week we would pray and wrestle with that. And and, and she was so real and honest about her journey. Our church loved her to death. We took up an offering. We supported them financially through this time. And, and I'll never forget one week. This is so real. I went over to her house, and uh, Gordon was at work, and it was just me and her. And I brought our youth pastor, or I'm sorry, our worship pastor with us. Because Tina loved music. Remember the newsboys? And, uh, and so I brought him into the guitar, and, and we sang to her, and we sang songs that she loved. And, I, and, I, and she was in a lot of pain, but I could tell it was very meaningful to her. And as I was leaving, Stephen had already turned and gone out the door. I, I didn't know what to say to her. I was caught for words. And so I, I, I said something really stupid and trite. I mean, it wasn't bad. I just said, hey, hang in there, kid, or something like that. And I'll never forget, this is so raw. She, 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 she looked up at me, and she had a grimace on her face. And then, I, okay, I, this is church. I know. She flipped me off at that moment. <laughs> it, it's true. I, I, and, and I got to tell you, I, I, that has never happened to me at all. I mean, I'm a minister. I'm a, I'm a pastor. And I, I know people get mad at me and they hate me and they don't like me. But nobody has ever dared to do something like that. And again, I was just stunned. I mean, I looked. I did a double take. And I thought, what, what, what are you doing? And I didn't say anything. And, and as I looked at her, she put her hand down. And just the faintest of smiles came on her face. And she didn't have to say anything. She was basically saying, don't ever say trite things to me again. Again, I was so taken back, I just walked out at that time, and I kind of had fun telling Kim that night, guess what happened to me today, you know? And I couldn't believe it. She continued to go downhill, and and eventually uh, she went into hospice. I got to tell you guys, I'm a fan of hospice. I've told you that before. I, uh, maybe some of you have having a great experience with them. I have as a pastor helping people. My mom died in hospice and, and, and Tina would die in hospice. There's one rule hospice has if you ever use them, and that's that once you go in, you don't go out. Like if you go into inpatient hospice, you're, you're going in there to, to, to die, and, and you're not kind of flitting back and forth. Tina didn't understand that. She wasn't ready to die. So she went into hospice at Western Reserve. We got a room all set, beautiful view of Lake Erie. And we said, okay, this is it, kid. We're going to you know, usher you into glory. And, and she would just freak out and say, I want to go to the emergency room. I want to go to the hospital. And so we, we take her up and go back to the hospital. And then she'd go back to hospice and back to the hospital. And she did this like four or five times. And it was getting very fatiguing. But, you know, I've always had a value that you can't force somebody to accept something. You have to just roll with their soul. I mean, that's what love is. So we were kind of doing that. It's hard for me to say this without getting emotional, but I'll never forget the night where the breakthrough came. I was at home, 
And uh, I got a phone call and I picked it up and it was Tina. And she was sobbing uncontrollably. She could barely get her words out. And I said, where are you? She said, I'm at a pay phone outside of the emergency room. And she said, and Gordon said, I need to call you. And I said, what's up? And she said to me, is it okay to go back to hospice and die? I just need to know if it's okay. And I gotta tell you, I was so hoping for that moment. I was praying for that moment where she would ask permission because that's what community is about. Remember I told you that earlier. We get real we get mirror effect in relational community. I was hoping that she would long in her soul to get permission to go and be with Jesus. And I wanted to jump through that phone line. I said, oh, Tita, yes, it's okay. I said, you go back to hospice. I'm gonna meet you there and we're gonna get you ready to see Jesus. She said, okay. Gordon got on the phone and said, thank you, pastor. We needed that. I went to visit her in hospice and just shortly after that, she went into that, that coma for the next few days where her body was shutting down. And we sang hymns. We prayed over her, little Dylan, that little precious boy. We, we helped him say goodbye to his mom. But it was a moment of grace and truth that Tina went through. The grace and the truth to say, it's okay to go be with Jesus. It's okay to say goodbye. It's what death is about, no matter when it comes for any of us. And you see, here's my point. is because this woman lived a very real life, real enough that she didn't mind flipping off her pastor, which, by the way, you should never, ever, ever do. <laughs> Tina can get away with that. You cannot. But she lived such a real life, even real enough to cry into a phone outside of an ER and say, is it okay? I, I don't know if I want to go. You see, that's real. And because she was willing to be honest, because she was willing to stay in the realm of community, even in the midst of the doubts, but Tina was able to experience God's grace and his truth when she most needed it. And see, that's what I long for for each of you. I hope that you never have to go through what Tina does. It's rare, by the way. Most people that I help usher into eternity, it's not that bad. It's not like that at all. But we all do need grace and truth. We all need the Lord. And what you've heard today is you need to get real. We need each other. You need to be in that type of community if that's ever going to happen for you. So get with others. When you get with others, get honest. If they can't take it, dust off your shoes as Jesus taught you and go find another group that will. Because they're out there. I have found some of them. And then as you do that, hang in there and watch God bring his grace and truth into that realm of community, you'll be glad that you did. Now you know what we mean by get real. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for the words of Jesus, for the words of Luke and the Acts and the words of John in his gospel. We've looked at three passages today, Lord, that added up, get us well on our way to the kind of community in which we can get real. And Lord, that's my longing for each one of us, that if we ever have to go through difficult times, that Lord, we're prepared, we're ready, as Tina was, even though she didn't know it at the time. And so God, I pray that what we talked about today would bear fruit in each of our lives. May we be men and women of integrity who are not afraid to man up or woman up and enter into the fray in which we know you are found. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.